I'm just going to start this episode by saying how great Rick and Morty is. Am I right? Have you watched it? If you haven't, just start at episode one, season one. Call me when you're done. Okay. Today we're going to talk about psychedelics. One in particular, but let's start with the word psychedelic, which was two words originally, Greek, put together. One, psych, which means mind or soul, uh, or soul mind, and the other, delin or delian or delin. If you're Greek or you know Greek, you probably know it. I'm just going to say D-E-L-E-I-N. That's the word it means to manifest. So then you have this mind manifesting. So psychedelics, they can develop the unused potentials of the human mind. All right? Timothy Leary kind of made the word popular a while ago. You've heard of Timothy Leary. So we're going to flash forward to 2020 with people doing amazing work in psychedelics, specifically Molly, MDMA, ecstasy, moon rocks. That's the work that Amy Emerson, the executive director of MAPS, which is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, is doing. And the work is fascinating, and it might kind of blow your mind, even without taking any drugs. So I invite you to listen to this episode of Nice Work, which is a podcast of the Super Nice Club. And we're just trying to make the world 10% nicer. I'm your host, Todd Brilliant, and here we go. Quick little correction here. Amy Emerson is the executive director at the MAPS Public Benefit Corporation, which is a wholly owned subsidiary of MAPS, which is a 501c3 nonprofit. All right, now we're clear. Here we go. Hi, Amy. Thanks for being on here with us. Really great to finally connect with you. Thanks, Todd. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> so we're going to take it from the top because not everybody has a lot of experience with uh, hallucinogenics or with MAPS. So tell us about MAPS, what the acronym means, um, who you are, what you do there. Yeah. So MAPS is a nonprofit. It's the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. It's been around for about 34 years, and it was started by Rick Doblin around the time that MDMA, which a lot of people will know as ecstasy or molly, was being scheduled. And prior to that, it was used by therapists as helping people with trauma, people with relationships. It's been used for, it has a very long history of use. And then it started to become um, more of a recreational drug. Um, the DEA got very concerned and decided it was going to be scheduled. Uh, right before that happened, Rick started this nonprofit, and he also made sure that Purdue University made a large batch of MDMA that could be used in clinical studies. So he, as it was being made a, schedule, being made a scheduled drug, he planned how we were going to get it back into the therapeutic realm by having the MDMA made ahead of time in hopes that we would get approval from FDA to start clinical studies and show the benefit of it and have it become an approved drug. And it's taken a very long time to do that, but we're well on our way now to getting approval with FDA. Uh, for MDMA as a prescription, and it would always be MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, so not MDMA alone, and it will always be given at a clinic, so quite different than the recreational use. So what I'm hearing is that Rick Doblin 
made the world's largest batch of Molly in history. <laughs> lasted for, for decades. Is that what happened? Possible. I, I don't have any way to verify that, but at least the largest legal batch of it probably until now. Now we have made much larger batches with our uh, GMP manufacturer for our clinical trials. Okay. So MAPS mostly focuses on MDA or are you working with, with other other ingredients? Well, we work mostly with MDMA. MDA is a whole different thing. <laughs> uh, so we work mostly with... Uh, <laughs> it's all right. MDMA is our primary focus and especially MDMA for PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome. So there's, we have done an LSD clinical study also in Switzerland, and we've supported an Ibogaine clinical study, observational study for people getting Ibogaine treatment for opiate addictions, and we've done the follow-up to that to look and see how, how well they responded to the treatment in the long term. But our main focus is MDMA. And then, oh, I can't forget the marijuana study. We have done a marijuana, the, like the only federally legal marijuana study in a patient population to show benefit, not risk. And that was marijuana for, for PTSD also. And when was that? We just completed that. Like oh, It happened over the last couple of years. We completed it about a year ago. Before we get into the clinical studies, and I want to get into your, your new press release, which is exciting mm-hmm. stuff. Um, what were you doing before MAPS? What, what got you into this, into this work? Mm-hmm. So prior to MAPS, I was working in research. I started off in HIV research and then into oncology research. And then I spent a lot of my time working actually in public health, infectious disease research, uh, working on meningitis vaccine and a flu vaccine. And that was what I was doing at the time that I met Rick. So all good stories have to start with Burning Man, right? So I come to Burning Man. And uh, well, at Burning Man in the late 90s, we picked Paul, my husband and I picked up like a piece of paper we were cleaning up. And it was about this mind states conference that was happening in Berkeley. So and I lived in Oakland at the time. And we were like, wow, what is this? This looks interesting. So we went to this mind states conference about a month later. And it was there's not very many psychedelic conferences at the time. And it was a mix of both like art, social and science with all kinds of people speaking about uh, psychedelics from different perspectives, right? From, And I heard Rick speak there and he was talking about trying to start a nonprofit drug development company for MDMA. And I was very intrigued by this because I understood drug development And I also saw the beneficial uses of psychedelics as tools for mental health. And so I think we went back the next year, I heard him talk again, and I just had this moment of clarity where I looked at Paul and I was like, I have to help him do this. Like, I know how to do this. And there was other groups trying to start psychedelic research, but they were more from the academic perspective. There was a group called Hefter starting to work, look at psilocybin, which is magic mushrooms. Um, and I'm not an academic. I come from more of the drug development um, pharma background. And I, at that moment, when I told Paul that I had to help Rick, I just really never looked back. It just felt like this moment of clarity that I knew I had to help make this project happen. Rick was not a drug development person. I emailed him, I sent him my resume, and a couple months later, he called me and 
asked me for some help with getting an ethics approval for the first study. And I spent six years helping him on my nights and weekends working pro bono to start this research project while I was working at Chiron, which and doing the vaccine development. So I did that till about 2009. And then I came on to really build the team as we were getting positive results from our early studies. We got more funding. All of our funding comes from donors. We're fully a nonprofit. We're fully donor funded very mission-driven, as you can tell, working for, uh, Rick's been working tirelessly for over 30 years. I've spent 15 years doing this. Six of them were unpaid. So we definitely follow our passion in this group. And we have a lot of people that came to us in that same way, really taking a large pay cut to do something that they really believed in. And um, it's gotten us to an amazing place. It's been a very long and windy road. But right now, we just finished our first phase three study. And the phase three is your last step before you get FDA approval. You have to do these slightly larger studies um, and you have to prove efficacy and safety. And you have to do two positive phase three studies. And we just finished our first one. We have not unblinded the data, but we had a, a like a unblinded group look at the interim analysis. And this is to make sure that we had the right size of a study. And so the resp- they responded back to us to tell us we did not add, need to add any more subjects. We have a 90% chance that the study is positive. Um, at this point, we're done. We're just cleaning the data to and analyzing it. And then um, later this year, we'll unblind it and we'll know our exact results. But I have a good feeling that it's the same type of results we had in phase two, which showed about 86% of the people in our study that had severe PTSD had a clinically significant response or a full response to treatment. Just three treatments. These are three times you get a treatment. This is not a daily drug. Wow. Three times MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, and they either had partial resolution or full resolution of symptoms. And the people in our studies, the very first study we did, the average length of time they had had PTSD was 18 years. So we're not talking about like new PTSD. We're talking about treatment resistant, severe. Yeah. Right. Wow. That's impressive. So that's what your new press release is. That was the big thing. This is big for you guys right now. So putting this in a little bit of since it's hard not to COVID perspective and your, your expertise in in the vaccines phase three clinical trial. How long has this Mm -hmm. taken you guys to get here? Well, let's see. It took about 30 years to get to the phase three study. Uh, it took a long time just to get for Rick to get to the first phase two study that we did. And of course there are regular hurdles because of what you're dealing with. I understand that. Yeah. Right. Uh, there, right. And there always right. is in drug development, but yes, it's a it's a little bit more with uh, working with MDMA, um, and also the added um, bonus of having to raise all the money through a nonprofit, through donors, and also and not investors, and just you know we don't want to make anything easy for ourselves, right? <laughs> so, Rick, Rick is known to be sort of the ultimate cheerleader and hustler for donors out there, right? He, I haven't met him, but I just hear yeah. and I've read in anything from just, you know, preparing for this call, but I also read the, um, what was the Michael Pollan book that came out about a year ago? Oh, uh, the How to Change Your Mind. Thank you. Right. Really yeah. goes into the wick there quite a bit. Um, yeah. And he sounds just irrepressible and like the best guy you could possibly have on this mission. He's a really incredible visionary leader. I have to say, I've learned a lot from him over the years about how to be, how to persevere and not give up. And uh, yeah. So phase three, clinical trials, PTSD sufferers, 
I would assume that some of these are military veterans, or is it a mix of all kinds of different abuse victims? Um, yeah, military. it's a mix. Most people think about the military when they think about PTSD. It's what we hear about in the news, right? right. And But about... About half the people with PTSD are actually women that are survivors of some type of abuse, either childhood or as adults. There's also medical PTSD. There's, you know, there's all kinds of ways. We've even treated somebody in our study that was um, one of the moderators that has to watch videos for before they go to YouTube or Facebook or these type of things. So one of the people that we treated in our study had PTSD related to watching those videos, right? So there's all types of reasons that people have PTSD. All of our studies are PTSD of any cause. And they're usually about ha at least half women. The first study that we did was almost all women. And there was a couple of military vets in there. We did one study that was all vets. And at a certain time in the history of PTSD and in developing treatments, there was a thought that the cause of the PTSD, that people with different causes of PTSD might react differently to different treatments. So we did one study just to show that that was not the case, that the results we got working only with military vets was the same results that we got working with people with PTSD of any cause. So then going forward from there, all of our studies are a mix. And what we're looking for is an approval of this treatment for people with PTSD of any any cause at any severity. Okay. So quickly take us through what three sessions looks like to somebody. You said just three sessions, 90% yeah. chance of stati statistically significant difference in symptoms. What are the sessions like? How do people do it? Yeah. So um, it's a 15 week treatment period. People come in for three preparatory sessions. First, they're screened to make sure it's safe for them to enroll in the study and they meet the qualifications. They come in for three preparatory sessions. They're assigned to two therapists, usually a male and a female, but it doesn't always have to be that way, but it's always two therapists. So they come in and these are about 90 minute sessions where they're getting to know the therapist, they're understanding what the treatment is going to be like, and they're starting to talk a little bit about their PTSD history. And then they have their first experimental session is what we call these right now because it's an experimental treatment, right? We're still looking at safety and efficacy. So they come in and they're, they get in the phase three, they're randomized to either placebo arm, so placebo plus psychotherapy or MDMA plus psychotherapy. And that's blinded. They don't know which group they're going to be in. Neither do the therapists. So they are, are given the medication and they have eight hours with the therapy team. It's, it's what we call a non-directive type therapy or inner-directed. It's very different than if you are t going to most types of psychotherapy. There, there are other types of therapy that are like this, but for the most part, when you go to see a therapist, it's more directed by the therapist. Um, with this, we really want to respect the in person's internal he healing process and where that takes them. So they have the medication, they have the two therapists, they have music, they have headphones, uh, they have an eye shade, and they do a lot of going inside and um, having their own discoveries and insights about their trauma. And then they have times, periods of time when they're coming out and they're talking to the therapists. The therapists are doing this in a way that's very supportive. The set and setting is important. It's done at a clinic, but in a nice living room type setting that would feel very comfortable and supportive to be in. And um, it's like the therapists have this empathetic presence where they do a lot of listening and reflective, active listening, reflecting back to the person, um, helping them to like really solidify the insights that they're getting. So that's what a session would look like. Most of the time at the end of the session, people spend the night at the site and then they have their first integrative visit the next day with the therapy team where they're able to talk about the things that they discovered during that the medication assisted psychotherapy. 
And then they do two more of those integrative sessions. Those are also, those are 90 minutes. Um, and they do those over a couple of weeks. And then one month after their first session, they do their second one. And so it's going to be exact same thing. Medication-assisted psychotherapy, three integrative visits. Most people, we see the biggest results after those two sessions. We see the biggest drop in the, in the severity of their symptoms. But they come back and they have one more session and three more integrative visits. We do our final look at the symptoms two months after their last treatment. So in case people are thinking, well, of course it looks good. You're looking the day after they've had ecstasy. That's not right. the case, right? right. <laughs> and um, one, of the, one of the biggest things we hear from patients also is why do they call this ecstasy? It is extremely hard work. They're going in and probably for one of the first times being able to look at the trauma that created their PTSD. And most of the time, it's not just one trauma. People have like a, a accumulation of traumas that led to that point. And then there's usually one defining thing that also happened. And so they start to uncover a whole past of trauma. And what the MDMA does is it allows them to go into the trauma with less fear. They have a sense of safety. They have a sense of trust in themselves and a sense of trust in the therapists. And this is a, what, what allows them to start reprocessing the trauma. It's called memory reconsolidation. And it's it, it's like refiling the memories. We've had people describe it to us as like during the session, it felt like the MDMA was bringing them all the files that they had on themselves. And they were looking at them, reading them, and then refiling them back in a proper place where they understood that now they're not in that trauma. It's really hard to do that in normal talk therapy because as you talk about the trauma, it feels re-traumatizing. So that's why the MDMA is such an important part of this. And it's also why we don't think the MDMA is doing it alone. It's, it's very important. It's MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. How interesting. And that's an important note because we're seeing uh, cities like Denver and Oakland that are doing the process of decriminalizing psilocybin, magic mushrooms, right? Does MAPS have a position on this, given that this sort of opens the door to using them however one sees fit and doesn't necessarily promote, you know, a therapeutic set and setting? Yeah, I think that the, there's cognitive liberty is very important. And we, we are, we don't, we aren't participating in the decriminalization efforts necessarily, but we do help advise and help educate. But we feel like the, the drug war has not had any beneficial effects on, <laughs> on society. And so we would like to support education and support that, that, these substances are decriminalized and that people are educated about how to use them. And decriminalization efforts aren't necessarily just for recreational. It does allow therapists then to start using, using magic mushrooms in a therapeutic type of setting or in group settings where there's peer support. So I'm actually, I work at a subsidiary of MAPS. Um, I was at MAPS to begin with. We created a public benefit corporation in 2014, which I'm the executive director of. And we took the research group and moved it into the public benefit corporation. So MAPS Public Benefit Corporation, and that's the group that I run. And we really do the research and the drug development program. But then MAPS, the nonprofit, does the education and they do harm reduction. So we have something called the Zendo that we that is at Burning Man and at other festivals mm -hmm. where it's about peer support and it's about helping people when they're having a difficult experience because we want to we want to have benefit maximization, right? So and we want to create safe, safe uses. For, for substances. So that's not my that's not my area of expertise. I really am on the drug development side, but it is part mm -hmm. of the philosophy of MAPS. 
So getting that that information over to these municipalities so that they can hand in hand. Yeah. Decriminalize and also educate around appropriate use. That sounds great to me. So I want to back it up a little bit to give some context and history to this. And correct me because I'm not an expert here at all. You are, (laughs) which we're talking. But if we go back to 1962, Mm -hmm. way back, it's been years. And I think there was some studies maybe before, but the famous one, the Good Friday experiment, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which was a double blind study where researchers and most people have heard of Timothy Leary. So including Timothy Leary, they administered magic mushroom, psilocybin, to volunteers. Mm-hmm. And almost all of them experienced these profound religious experiences, which mm-hmm. provided, what's the word? Empirical. Empirical support for this idea that mm-hmm. psychedelic drugs can facilitate these types of experiences, right? Right. And then... We won't get into the details, but you know, then everything turned against psychedelics. Everything got scheduled, like you said. And 25 years later, your mentor, your leader, Rick Doblin, followed up with mm-hmm. another improved double-blind study that took the sort of the little kinks and quirks that were the flaws from the first experiment, and he confirmed those results. Correct? Yes. So I mentioned this just because one, not everybody's a student of psychedelic therapy and they haven't necessarily heard of it. And I want them, if you're listening to this and this is new to you, to do your own research into all of this. And and this is a compelling landmark study, the Good Friday Experiment. Good place to start. And you can find these on the MAPS website too, if you want to read more about them and and the Rick's Rick's follow-up to that study also. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask you. Was this study that directly led to MAPS or were there other lesser known studies that had equal, greater impact? Is this just the one that we've heard about, the Good Friday Experiment and Rick's follow-up? I, you know, I'm not sure that it directly led to MAPS, but I think it led to part of Rick's mission to to ensure that these tools could be used in a, you know, in a legal context, right? Um, Because... He saw what happened in the 60s with all of it being shut down and with with trying to do it not through the system that's in place in the U.S., right? And it created a lot of fear that these, you know, substances were ruining the youth. And, you know, it's like it was creating this uprising, right? And so Rick saw that that was not the way to do it, right? And this is what led him to decide, I want to do a nonprofit drug development company to do this. Like, and I want to do it through the system. Um, I want to do it through the FDA. I want to actually prove that 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 this is safe and efficacious so that it is available and we don't have the backlash that we had in the 60s with everything just being kind of shut down, right? Mm-hmm. So in, in that way, it did lead to MAPS because he wanted to be a psychedelic therapist and that was his biggest motivation. I want to be a psychedelic therapist. How do I do it? Well, first it has to be legal. So then that started this 30 some year <laughs> mission to make it legal so that Rick could ultimately retire from this and have the job that he really started out wanting, which is a psychedelic therapist. What a story, both of you, for having the the confidence to allow your passions in, in such mm-hmm. a field that's afar of, of what most would consider a sustainable career to yeah. <laughs> blossom into, you know, not only sustainable careers, but careers that are, that are changing the world. That's, that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So before he passed last year, public policy expert, Mark Kleeman, could be Kleeman. I'm going to say Kleeman because mm-hmm. it's guy, said that there's obviously been a significant shift at the regulatory agencies and the institutional review boards. There are studies with psychedelic drugs being approved that wouldn't have been approved 10 years ago. So what do you th- what are the, why the shift? Well, 
we were doing studies 10 years ago, and I think those studies are what helped to create the shift. I think it's been a, you know, slow opening of people's minds. But as you start to have data from the early studies that we were doing, and then you start to have a real focus on education and on um, so it's like the science and the education side were starting to come together. And I think also there was like a shift in that the baby boomers, if you think about like who who was experimenting with these things, right? In the, in the you know, early times, 50s, 60s, 70s, right now, you know, and then they went on to have professional careers. It didn't ruin them. And now they're like coming towards the end of that and looking at that, like, hey, maybe there is something to this, you know, they've had their own experiences with it. And I think there's nothing like changing people's mind than either having your own experiences or having somebody close to you have the experiences. So you have that coming about that getting more publicized, more education coming out, young people also, you know, wanting to experiment, right. And, and then you have the science starting to come out. So it was like, from multiple places, things were shifting. Um, And there's also just a shift at the FDA, with putting science before politics. And so I think that that was a really important part. I know for us, it was really important. We, The head of psychiatric products that we worked with at FDA, his name is Tom Loughran, was really amazing in putting science before politics. And he really went to, to bat for approving these studies at the FDA and not letting the DEA or the politics shut the research down. So there was just like multiple things that all kind of came together. And then I think over time, as we've done more of these studies and more information is going out there, um, that people are starting to really understand the risks and the benefits and it's shifting opinions. And it's really in the last co- the last five years, it's really been a huge shift as more and more research is coming out, both on MDMA and on psilocybin. So back in the 50s and 60s, you know, researchers were working on you know, similar things. And they started using, and in a few years, it became, wow, this is these wild new wonder drugs, right? And they mm-hmm. were getting all kinds of press. And then there were big parties and and the backlash happened, right? Within mm-hmm. 10 or 15 years. Because even though it was rooted in science, uh, the popular press turned it into a whole big dangerous thing. Do you guys mm-hmm. have any fear that that could repeat itself with decriminalization with all these amazing positive results? I mean, there's always that worry. I mean, part of the part of the reason that we do research internationally is in case there ever was a backlash. But I think the closer that we get to having big phase three studies and big data sets, and there's so many people now interested in this and researching it, that the that the science is there to um, balance out the you know the the fears and what the risks are because we'll know what the risks are. And so we'll be able to actually have, you know, empirical conversation about what is the risk and the benefit. And, you know, again, we're not trying to do this for a recreation. This is like a medicalization. And there's, I support, you know, however people want to do the work of bringing these substances um, as tools to people. I just happen to be working on the medicalization side of this, but there's, there's lots of other ways to support this work. And so I don't want it to sound like this is the only safe way to use it, but it it is one way that you can help people to understand the benefits is through a medical model. Absolutely. And, and to, to, to think that society at large um, would put faith <clears throat> in science, 
I'm I'm not sure, but I'm very hopeful. I'm very hopeful of that. Did I read that MAPS was sponsoring clinical trials that deal with autism? We did one study uh, for social anxiety, and it happened to be a social anxiety in autistic adults. It wasn't to treat uh, um, autism. Um, and what we found was that it was very helpful and that we should really just be looking at it for severe social anxiety. It doesn't matter. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's in an autistic adult or right. you know, neurotypical, whatever, but it is very beneficial. We had someone in that study that was 40, uh, had never gone on a date. And after the study, they were able to like actually go on a date, right? Like it was pretty life-changing for them. People that weren't able to leave their, barely able to leave their homes, uh, being paralyzed by social anxiety. And, uh, they were able, they, they were able to make some shifts and it wasn't, is really because it gave them a perspective, right? They were like, oh, the, the MDMA, along with the psychotherapy, they were able to have a deeper understanding of social connection. And then they were able to remember that when, when they don't have the MDMA on board anymore. And it made more sense to them so they could more... It was like almost like they're using their logic to um, to understand how to interact more in society um, and more with other people because they had a reference point that made sense to them then. I'm going to take my Super Nice Club hat off mm -hmm. here. You can see and make it. I'm going to put my yeah. conspiracy theory hat on. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure there's plenty of those. Hats <laughs> with the flaps and the warmth and the, I don't know. <laughs> I don't um, know. There are Northern Exposure hats, if you remember yes, that. that I, uh, I do. Daryl, Daryl, my other brother, Daryl. That's the kind yeah. of hat I'm wearing, folks. Just dated myself. What I'm hearing is that the work that you're doing could be making pharmaceuticals super nervous because it sounds like you could be replacing a lot of, well, you know, drugs that people take for things like anxiety on the mm -hmm. daily uh, yeah. A whole suite of drugs. What do you do? You guys talk about that at all? Is that, am I am I being totally crazy? Did I just come up with this on my own? Or <laughs> no? A lot of people bring this up to us, and it is something we think about. I don't think that they see a lot of competition from us, or too much worry about it. At least at this point, there are going to be plenty of people that would rather just dampen their symptoms and take mm -hmm. something that's going to help them get through. In order to do the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, you really have to be ready for some incredibly hard work. And it's also not for everybody, right? It has to be safe. You have to meet the qualifications to be in the studies. And even post-approval, there'll be like medical qualifications um, to make sure that it's safe for you. And then it's just the willingness to go through 15 weeks of this type of intensive therapy. It's like 42 hours of therapy in 15 weeks. And um, there's just going to, there's always going to be people that are ready to do that and people that aren't. And there's so many people out there with trauma. We need all the tools that we possibly can have to help support people. And I also, it's not going to be a huge, fast rollout for us when this is approved uh, because we have to, because it is a assisted psychotherapy, we have to train therapists and we can't finish training therapists unless they can also treat people because we need to give them supervision um, after they do their first treatments to make sure that they're following the therapy, right? So this creates a bottleneck and kind of a slow a rollout. So, but that's also important because I think something big like this, we do have to carefully and systematically introduce it.
so that we make sure that we're being safe. So I don't think they see a huge amount of competition for us from us at, at this point. Uh, we haven't seen any signs of that. They may start get interest, getting interested in developing their own, you know, analogs of these types of medications or like the way it works. They might use this in um, research to develop other um, other medications. Yeah. And they have a little bigger budget than you guys. Mm, yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Of budget, you guys are in a collaboration with the Psychedelic Science Funders Collaborative, uh, PSFC, $30 yes. million capstone fund. Yes. Talk about the capstone fund. And, you know, if we have some some interested billionaires listening, what, what's the capstone fund? <laughs> so the capstone, the capstone fund is to help us to finish uh, phase three and begin the commercialization process if we're successful, which I, I feel... 90%, as our press release said, certain that we are successful. So the Capstone Fund is $30 million, first for my group to expand, right? We have been doing this on a shoestring. <laughs> we have a lot of mission-driven people in our company that have been working uh, a lot. And so we also face burnout if we were to keep going that way. So I really needed to expand. And it's also more complex as you get to these stages. So I'm actually needing to build uh, the Public Benefit Corporation out into a full-fledged company, which cost more money. So we went from literally there was seven of us that started uh, in like like in 2014, I think my team was seven and now we're up to 60. And most of that growth has happened in the last year and a half. So supporting that and then supporting the um, the the, the package that we'll need to go to FDA, it takes a lot of resources to do that. Paying all of our sites, the therapists to do these clinical trials. We have 15 clinical trial sites in the US, Canada, and Israel. And then we're also starting uh, clinical trials in Europe. So if anybody's familiar with the cost of phase three, 30 million is like tiny compared to what pharmaceutical companies would be paying to do this work. So that's what the capstone about is about getting us over the finish line and allowing us to build something sustainable so that we can continue to do more of this work. Okay. And that's with the psychedelic science funders collaborative. Yes, they sound like a really interesting community of philanthropists. They're amazing. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes. We do ah. get to hang out with them and they're a really amazing group of people and I'm super grateful for, for them. <laughs> Where would you recommend somebody listening to this? They're like, God, you know, my, my mom should really check into that. Are there ongoing trials or where, where should they go to educate up about this? The MAPS website is an amazing educational resource. And there's also the MAPS Public Benefit Corporation website, too, that you can go to. But all of our research, we are very transparent. We put our protocols online. The treatment manual is online. All of the places that are doing uh, doing the research, they're all on our website. Uh, right now with COVID, uh, there's not a lot of enrollment going on in clinical trials because of the social distancing. As things start to open back up again, we're looking at how to make sure that we can do the therapy visits, the ones because need to be in person, right? The MDMA ones need to be in person, how we can do those safely. So just that caveat is normally I would say we're enrolling and go to clinicaltrials.gov to look at all the open clinical studies and look at our website. But right now there is a bit of a pause on enrollment and we're looking now at how that's going to be restarting. Probably our second phase three study will be starting at the um, end of June, beginning of July to start enrolling again, but it will be a little bit slow. Um, and you okay. can see all those sites online that are participating. So that's maps.org. And then yeah. I'm trying to be you know, cognizant of your time here. So many questions, but let's see, we'll just bring <laughs> it back. Why MDA versus, say, LSD or ketamine or ayahuasca or, or peyote? Mm -hmm. Is it because it can be accurately dosed more easily mm -hmm. or 
What are some of the reasons why you, why Rick went with MDMA originally? Yeah, so MDMA was a good one to start with because it's it's the easiest, probably the easiest on your ego. <laughs> it's the easiest on the system for as uh, for being like a first step into this type of of work with a psychedelic. We call it psychedelic because psychedelic means mind manifesting. Sometimes people get confused because psychedelic you think hallucinogen, but psychedelic right. literally means mind manifesting. And so we do consider MDMA to be a psychedelic, and it is mind mind manifesting and it's gentle it it has the ability to reduce fear increase trust increase your empathy for yourself a lot of times people haven't felt empathy and love for their and forgiveness for their own self for a long time and so it allows people to start touching into to their trauma in a really safe and gentle way where other psychedelics that are more the um, classic hallucinogens can be incredibly helpful, but it can be a little bit more challenging for people uh, to take those first steps. Yeah, there was also a lot of research that had already been done on MDMA. We didn't have to do phase one safety studies because they had pretty much been done by NIDA and by the government to show how dangerous it was, which really it did not show that (laughs) as the risks. And so we were able to actually use that data, take it to the FDA and say, well, we want to start right at phase two because look at all of this phase one data that's been done. Uh, So that was another reason to start with MDMA is it saved us a lot of money because the government did those initial studies for us. Well, that's a great reason. I'm going to get into the wrap-up here. We do a couple of things. The first one is a super nice challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have one for the yes. members. You know, let it rip. We want to hear it. I would say my challenge is to find ways to help fight mental health stigma. Um, so a couple of ways that you could do that would be to talk openly about your own mental health and if you've had any challenges. Um, and I'm not talking about like you don't have to go tell everybody in the world about this, but find somebody that you trust, that you care about, or that you want to help open their mind and have a conversation about mental health um, challenges that you might've had. Share resources to help educate yourself and others. And I think finding ways to show compassion or to help people that are struggling, especially during this time of COVID, reach out to somebody that you think might be struggling that you haven't heard from for a while. Help people overcome shame related to having a mental health illness. So I'm sure there's lots of different ways that people can think to do that. But that is my super nice challenge is to help us that is a great, increase the stigma. Nice <laughs> I hope everybody listening takes it on and 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 post some social proof if you want. Tag us. Um, tag Amy at Maps. Um, we'll put all the information on that in the show notes. I love that challenge. I think that's great because... I'm sure it's, you know, said all the time, but we all know people with mental health challenges. Mm-hmm. We don't always know that we know people with mental health challenges. Right, right. That's for sure. And then lastly, do you have any questions for me? Um, I, I want to hear what you're related to this conversation. What would be your super nice challenge? Related to this? Oh, wow. My super nice challenge. I think it would be, and I'm just riffing here, of course, because it's all I can do. It would be if you're listening to this and you're finding yourself resistant to the the content to the information a little bit because it's a little scary to you, right? This thought of of taking drugs to get better because we've all been conditioned to think that they do a lot of damage and of course they can. In in anything can be mis- can be misused. I would just challenge you to read up a little bit on it. I would challenge you to take a little bit of time um, visiting maps.org the website 
and uh, taking a look at the, the, the new press release on these clinical, uh, this phase three trial. The fact that this stuff, I mean, just remember this. The challenge is this. Remember this. Three sessions dramatically improve the lives of people suffering from PTSD. And that's really hard to overlook. So I guess I would just challenge you to open yourself up. You know, I'm not asking you to go out and, and uh, take MDMA or, you know, go munch on some peyote. But you can if you'd like to. I have. I probably will again. Full disclosure. Justice, my 17-year-old, if you're listening to this, I think you probably have already guessed. But just open yourself up to the ideas that, that Amy is presenting here and that she and Rick and her colleagues are working so passionately on. And just remember that if people are this passionate about this, it's not just for uh, shits and giggles and for uh, as, as a party drug. There's obviously something powerfully healing about all of this to pay attention to. I love that. I love that challenge too. It is one of the best ways to help change people's mind is if they educate themselves and then they share that because we trust the people that we're close to, to give us good information. So share good information. Yeah. And maybe you look into it and you, and you think, Hey, I don't agree. And that's okay too. Just look into it. Totally. That's, 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 totally. The, that's the challenge. Amy, it's noon. You've got to jump on a more important call. Thank you again yeah. for giving us your time. Really appreciate it. And Thanks, I'm, I'm <laughs> we'll talk to you again. We still have to do that dinner one of these days. It's yes, been, <laughs> I would love to. As soon as the social distancing is over, let's do it. I know. All right. I'll talk to you later. And there you have it, folks. A super nice conversation with Amy Emerson of MAPS. Now it's time for a couple of super nice takeaways. The first one is just how great is Amy? She followed her passion, left behind a high-powered job in pharmaceutical land, and jumped in with a nonprofit that is absolutely putting people above profit. Not only that, but there can't be any job security in advocating for the legalization of a Schedule One drug. That's brave. That's following your heart, and that's doing super nice work for the benefit of others at your own literal expense. Hats off and big gratitude to Amy and everyone at MAPS and, and to everyone that's helping MAPS. The other takeaway here is that this is a topic that can really divide people. The propaganda on both sides of most drug debates is fierce. Take um, marijuana, for example. You know, opponents will tell you that it's addictive, it'll melt your mind, and some advocates will say that it will reprogram your genetic code, turning you superhuman, and, and that hemp oil will rid the world of fossil fuels. None of, none of that's true. But that doesn't mean there isn't a place, a very important place, for continued research into the benefits of psychedelics. And it would do the world a lot of good if we could just have open, rational conversations instead of starting, like we often do, from a place of fear or a place of defensiveness. Have you ever started a conversation in your relationship from one of those places? Probably have. I know I have. It doesn't work out well. MDMA may not be for you, but it may work magic on someone you know and love whose life has been terrifically hampered by PTSD. So let's keep the conversation going for their sake. All right. Don't forget to subscribe to Nice Work wherever you get your podcast. And please leave a review Give us a shout. We'd love to hear from you. You can message us on Facebook or Instagram or plain old email, Todd, T-O-D, 1D, at superniceclub.com. Or you can just call me on my phone, 707-500-1580. That's the nice line. And to be a member of the Super Nice Club, all you have to do is follow us on Instagram or Facebook. If you want to represent with some super sweet street fashion, 
Just got some new hats in. Check them out over at superniceclub.com. Use discount code SUPERNICEAMY, A-M-Y, for 15% off. Stay nice, everyone. Thank you.